Welcome to Sunday School. Uh, it's always good to see you all here. So, I've heard Brother DeGarmo's deployment has been extended a month already. And so it looks like you're stuck with me as the Sunday school teacher until at least April. When I first became, uh, first became pastor, I started a series in Sunday school to go through the last 12 books of our Old Testament. Many people refer to those as the minor prophets. And uh, I've never heard verse-by-verse teaching through those books, and so I thought it would be fun to try to do that, and little did I know I was biting off way more than I can chew. And so, but it's been fun going through what we have gone through so far, and uh, I don't like the label minor prophets because it can be very misleading to those who don't really understand what that means. Most of them are shorter than those who are commonly referred to as major prophets, but there's nothing minor about the message of the minor prophets. They, they have a major message because the message comes from God. And so it's a message that has to be heard, and we shouldn't label it minor with the idea of thinking that it's not as significant as those we call major prophets. So far, since uh, I've been doing this, we've covered Hosea and Joel. And then you'll remember God sent Brother Dawson here, and he taught Sunday school for a year. And then after Dawson left, DeGarmo got here. And he's now officially our teacher, but with his TDYs, I started teaching again. So I chose a short book thinking he would only be TDY for just a little bit and then go deployed this summer. Well, he ended up going TDY and then right into his no-notice deployment. So we bit off Haggai and finished that last week. And now that I've got some months here that I need to teach, I was trying to pick a book which might time out to when he gets back. And that's hard to do because you just never know how the Spirit's going to lead. And um, so I started crunching the averages. How many verses do I cover on average a week? And then I divide, I times that by the amount of weeks I have. And uh, it's it's a formula. And so (laughs) came up with this. Turn to the book of Micah. (laughs) Amen. It's the 33rd book. It has been divided into seven chapters containing 105 verses. There are different Micahs in the Bible. There's several actually, so don't confuse this Micah with those Micahs. The most notable other Micah is the one that we read in Judges, the one who compromised and ended up having false gods intermixed with the worship of God. And anyway, he was a compromiser. He sold out. Don't confuse this Micah with that Micah in Judges 17 and 18. Micahs are also mentioned in the genealogies we read in First Chronicles, that area of your Bible where you typically end up allowing Alexander Scorby to read all the names for you because it's laborious. And that's when most people just drop out and say, well, I tried to read my Bible. There's some Micahs in there. Nor is this Micah to be confound, confused with uh, Micaiah, which is another way of saying Micah. Who, he was the son of Imla, who spoke God's word against Ahab, who was a wicked king over uh, the house of Israel. We'll actually get into that just a little bit today. 
So the easiest way to say all this, after I typed all that, I realized the easiest way to say all this is that this Micah here of the book of Micah is only mentioned one other time in the Scripture, and that's in Jeremiah 26, 18. And I'm assuming we'll look at that later on because it's a quote from here. But um, all the other Micahs or Micahs are different Micahs. That was way easier than what I was trying to do. So if you found Micah, we're going to begin by reading verse 1. If you haven't found it, keep looking. It's in that unused portion of your Bible. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morasthite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Just by way of introduction this morning, the name Micah means who is like Jehovah, which may have come about from the victory song of Israel when they went through the Red Sea. And on the other side there in Exodus 15 and in verse 11, they were singing, Who is like unto thee, O Lord? That would be another way of saying Micah. And so who is like unto God? And as this prophecy begins to close in chapter 7, we'll read in verse 18, Who is a God like unto thee? And it's a wonderful passage. In fact, I think I have it here to to read it. Yeah, the entirety of that, verses 18 through 20 over in chapter 7, which bear a resemblance to the meaning of Micah's name, says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Aren't you glad for that? He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So it's amazing how this book will close out. This Micah is called the Moristhite. Uh, which tells us where he's from. He's from the town of um, Morsheth. That's how I'm going to say it. I don't know how to say it. That's how I'm going to say it. Uh, He's from the town of Morsheth. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, we'll read of a place called Morsheth Gath. And there are those who feel that these two locations are the same location. But it can be difficult to know for sure when it comes to some of these more obscure towns that we find in the Scripture to know exactly where they're located. Archaeologists are always out there trying to find these places, and sometimes I think they're guessing where they put the dot. But um, And so we're told that this is the same place. Most think that the town where he was from is approximately 20 to 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem in the vicinity of Lachish. Many of you, that would sound familiar to you. And if Morsheth Gath is the same as Morsheth, it places it near the Philistines. Uh, Remember, Goliath was the champion of the Philistines who was from Gath. And so this is Morsheth Gath. And so it's, it's kind of in that area where there's some influence between the two nations. And um, Gath had changed hands a couple of times during the battles between Israel and the Philistines. Um, in, in fact, if one breaks down the meaning of Morsheth Gath, we find that Morsheth means to occupy. And it specifically means that you occupy something that 
once had other inhabitants. So it's an interesting name for this town because Gath means the wine press. The time frame, and I'm going to get into more of the name here in just a minute, but the, the time frame in which Micah prophesied, it was in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We see that in verse 1. They were kings over Judah. And this means that Micah, Isaiah, and Hosea all prophesied at the same time. There was some overlap uh, when they had their ministries. And, and some people say that Micah's ministry lasted as long as 50 years. Others would also place Amos in the list of contemporaries in there. To many, Micah has been considered, this book has been considered a condensed version of the book of Isaiah. In fact, there are some verses that are identical, almost identical to what we find in Isaiah. And uh, we'll cover that when we get to those verses. And so the, the timing here of Micah's prophecy is given in relation to the kings of Judah. He was a prophet, though, to both houses, which the end of verse 1 establishes by telling us uh, what he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria and Jerusalem were the capital cities of both kingdoms. Um, just a reminder for those who might be unfamiliar, our Bible is arranged with a purpose, but it's not necessarily in chronological order. In fact, it's not. Uh, there are large sections where it is, but, it, but it's not always in chronological order. So with the exception of the captivity books, the post-captivity books, outside of that, the prophets, they all fit during the times of the kings. And so when we read of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, that's where these, uh, most of these books will fit, is during that time. So keep that in mind. It's not necessarily uh, in, in order here. Remember that during the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon, Israel was, was one nation. They were unified. All 12 tribes were unified together. But then after Solomon, Solomon did well, wicked before the Lord. And uh, it's one of the saddest stories in all the Bible, if you want my opinion, that at the end of Solomon's life, the Bible actually says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so he had committed spiritual whoredoms by marrying pagan wives, building them high places to worship their gods. And because of his, his turning from God, God said, I'm going to take the kingdom and rend it in two after Solomon died. And so after that happened, the ten tribes were to the north and they were called the house of Israel or the kingdom of Israel. Two tribes were to the south, known as the kingdom of Judah, or the, the tribe of Judah, the house of Judah. And so it was a division in the kingdom from that point on. And Israel never recovered. They always had wicked kings. And they ended up going into captivity, as we'll see here a little bit this morning. They went into captivity by the Assyrians, probably about 100 and 125 years before Judah went into captivity to Babylon for their wickedness. And so anyway... Micah, what's interesting about where he's from, Micah comes from the country. That's why I was trying to establish all that. He comes from a country landscape, and he's a prophet to the cities. And I think we can kind of understand this, where sometimes when you grow up in the country, 
and you see what's going on in the cities, it's really troubling. Now, some of you grew up in the inner city, and for you, that's just life. But for many who grew up in the country, you go to the city, it can be shocking and overwhelming. And, and Micah comes from the country, and, and he's going to bring a message from God against what's taking place in the inner cities of Samaria and Jerusalem. And, and so when you kind of understand the cultural difference in which Micah's coming from, you can see better as we'll go through this book, the accusations that he's bringing up are more clearly seen by a country boy than they are from somebody who grew up in the city. And so I'm sure that the city folks see things different, but I'm focusing it this way right now. Amen. And so he's going to the cities. That's the places of leadership. That's the capital. They are the ones who enact the laws and get the nation to follow what it is they're putting in place. The cities were places of influence. They were the home of the kings. And Micah is going to condemn the urban sinners for their sinfulness. It's very similar to what we see today, especially when we think of a city like Chicago and the inner city of Chicago and how there's always murders, there's always crime, there's always violence, theft, corruption, covetousness, materialism, and just an overall lack of godliness. And so there may be a play in words in all of this, and and I find it very fascinating. Remember in the Old Testament that names had a lot of meaning. You know, I don't know why I'm Gary. I hate that name, but that's my name. And I like the little placards that tell me I'm, I'm a mighty warrior. You know, but then you go like the Sharkheads in Biloxi and it says Major Doofus. And so you never know what your name really means these days. And so I'm going to go with Mighty Warrior. Hey Amen. I killed that pie. Man, I had a Perkins coconut cream pie all to myself. So, there may be a play of words in all this. Micah comes from another location. We, we could almost say he kind of comes from like another country. It, it, it's so different. And he's coming to pronounce judgment. And he comes from the place where the previous occupants have been driven out. Remember, Morsheth. From where the previous occupants have been driven out to tell the inhabitants of Israel and Judah that they will no longer occupy the land. Because judgment is coming. They will be driven out. And Gath, meaning a wine press, which is usually symbolic of God's judgment. And so in relation to our Lord, when we think about all the meanings of, of these names, who is like our Lord, who will come back from a heavenly country to pronounce judgment on all the corruption of this earthly country, where he will drive out the wicked inhabitants who once occupied it, and he will tread the winepress of Almighty God and pour out his wrath. Do you see the, the play on words here? And so I think there might be something to that. It can also, though, be applied to the Lord's mercy. Who is like our Lord who came from another country to pronounce judgment upon sin and drive out Satan's occupation in the life of those who will place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? All because Jesus Christ willingly drank of the cup that the Father gave him. And so there's a lot of symbolism here, and there's a lot of symbolism throughout this book. And so that's kind of a quasi-introduction, amen? That's the best you get from me. And you have to get Brother Long up here to get a better one. Let's get into this book. 
We're in Micah. Let's read verses 2 through 7. Hear all ye people. Hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. And let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under Him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field, and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. And all, all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. So I mentioned earlier that there was a prophet named Micaiah, and he was the son of Imlah. He prophesied in the days of Ahab king over the house of Israel. Ahab was a very wicked man. Micaiah, remember, that's another way of saying Micah. And Ahab hated Micaiah. He, he's the one that said, all he ever does is prophesy evil against me. I don't like him. And so anyway, long story short, Micaiah foretold that Ahab would not return from the battle in peace. And uh, the last words, this is where I'm going with this, the last words recorded from Micaiah were these in 1 Kings twenty two twenty eight: Hearken, O people, every one of you. The same account given, is given in 2 Chronicles 18, 7. It's just an interesting side note that Micaiah's last words are Micah's first words. Hearken, all ye people. That's the last thing we read about Micaiah. And then the first thing we have here from Micah, hear all ye people, hearken, O earth. And, and I'm, I'm sure there's something to all that that I didn't have time to study. Amen? So somebody figure out what the message is there, and you can come up and preach it. But it's interesting, though, that the call here in Micah is to all the people. In the prophecy from Micaiah, the king was refusing to listen. He didn't want to hear it. it. All he ever does is tell me bad things. And, and what's funny about that, if you remember that account, when Ahab first came to Micaiah uh, saying all he's going to do is prophesy bad, Micaiah gave him lip service. It was like, yeah, go on. It's going to be fine. You'll return in peace. <laughs> and he's like, how many times I got to tell you to quit lying to me? And anyway, I, I like it when preachers are a little, you know, needly. I don't know where I was going with that. But the king refused to listen and I would say this, if the people to whom the message is designed won't hearken to it, then God's going to give the message to all the people of the earth so that the earth may know there's a God in heaven. Both Israel and Judah had not repented at the preaching of the prophets. God sent them many times, men of God, to show them the error of their way and try to get them to turn back to Him. And they were guilty of abusing the prophets imprisoning the prophets, killing the prophets even. They did not want to hear the message of God. In Nehemiah 9.26, it says, and Nehemiah, he's looking back upon the nation as a whole 
when they came out of Egypt. And he's kind of summarizing the nation up to that point in Nehemiah. And he says, Nevertheless, they, speaking of Israel, were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs. And they slew the prophets, which testified against them to, to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations. And then just before the children of Israel are to go, or the children of Judah are to go into Babylonian captivity, we read these words in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 14 through 16. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hollowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes. And sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. And then in Hebrews 11, summarizing the Old Testament prophets, we read in verses 35 through 38 that others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And so God, over and over again, would send messengers to try to get Israel to turn back to Him. And now, as a result of, of refusing to hear God, judgment's on the way. Boy, there's a lesson there for us, amen? When we refuse to hear God's warning and God's message, and we refuse to heed it and to live by His commands, you can rest assured judgment is on the way at some point. And so God was constantly trying to bring them to Himself. We see here that the Lord is a witness against them. And I want to tell you, it's never good when God says, I'm a witness against you. Because God doesn't lie. Amen? He's not a false witness. And if He says, I'm witnessing against you, it's trouble. And if God says He has a problem with us, then there's a problem indeed. Amen. When God is a witness, be sure judgment's on the way. Unless there's repentance and God is kind enough to show mercy. Malachi 3, 5 says, And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the false swearers, against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. And so God, here Micah comes on the scene because God has a serious indictment against Israel and against Judah. He's going to give them a warning that judgment is on the way. And that's going to be what this prophecy is going to talk about. And God, He witnesses to us through His Word. He witnesses to us through His preachers. And through the faithful men and women who will proclaim the Word of God out there and try to get sinners to turn to God. And God is a faithful witness. Amen. 
when we choose to rebel against God's word and against God's messenger, he will testify against us according to his word. And so the the very word that we reject, the very word that we don't want to heed, is the very word in which we'll stand in judgment for. What did we do with the Bible? What did we do with God's revealed word to us? Did we obey it? Did we heed it? Did we listen? And so that's how God judges us. We read at the end of verse 1 that the witness against the people will come from the Lord from His holy temple. Now, I don't believe this refers to the physical temple that was then standing, because as we'll see in these opening verses, that temple had become polluted and it ceased to be holy. So I believe then when it says that the Lord will come from His holy temple, it's talking about His heavenly temple. In Psalm 11.4 it says, The Lord in His holy temple... The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. And then Habakkuk 2.20 says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. And so God sees everything from His holy temple. He's looking down upon earth. And He sees it all. And He knows what's going on. And, And here's what I want you to get from that little phrase. God sees the earth through the lens of His holiness. He looks upon the earth as what has been revealed in His Word to us. He says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And He looks down upon the earth with holiness in mind. And and listen, God is not biased in what He sees. Isn't that right? He doesn't see as man will often see things. Mankind tends to justify their sinfulness. Tends to come up with reasons why I can't. Reasons why I stumble. Reasons why I keep getting caught up in this. We, we tend to justify that. We tend to minimize our crimes against a holy God. And we tend to get to the point where after years of not trying to get victory and and falling back into the same temptation and the same sin, we will eventually just get to the place where we no longer see it as something terrible against God. And it just becomes a part of us. And so I want you to understand that God will not bend His standard of holiness. He doesn't bend it according to what we think is right. I've heard those who profess to know God say things like this. What's the big deal if two men or two women love each other and want to get married? With the generation that's coming up, that's all they've been taught. And and we're, we're starting to get into uncharted waters where we better start having an answer. And I think for the longest time we were able just to push that thing back in the closet and nobody really had to talk about it. It's kind of like that story. The guy said he went to the, uh, the mission field and he noticed along the beach there where they were, the tribes were assembled that there were people who had missing limbs and missing legs, arms, and bite marks on them. And as he's standing there, he notices a crocodile comes up from the banks and he snatches a little kid. He drags him in, bites a leg off. And the, and the missionary's like, good night, did you see that? And they're like, we don't talk about the crocodiles. 
And then he keeps seeing this happening, and, and the, the tribe just keeps saying, we don't talk about crocodiles. We don't talk about it. But that's the one thing they need to start talking about. And, and it's a, I'm sure, I know that's a made-up story, but the illustration is this. There are subjects that the Baptists have just kind of pushed aside and said, we don't, we don't talk about those. And meanwhile, the public school's talking about it. And so I hear believers say, and, and I'm not here to question their salvation on this, but I'll hear believers say, what's wrong with that? See, they're judging holiness based upon their emotions and not the Word of God. The Bible makes the point of saying that God is not a man. He's not a man that He should lie. He's not a man that He should repent or change His mind about His Word. And the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. God will not be swayed by the emotions of a culture. Listen, it was running rampant back there in Genesis. <laughs> this is nothing new. He didn't change his mind then. He's not going to change his mind now. His holiness is unchangeable. He sees from his holy heavenly temple and throne. He doesn't look through earthly temples, which we see are turning away from godliness on every hand. They're turning away from this book. And they're justifying their turn away from God's Word by silly things like, well, it, it, the culture was different back then. Or that book that you guys use, it's archaic. And so we're, culture is, is trying to bend the holiness of God. Verse 3 certainly seems to indicate that it indeed refers to the Lord coming down from His heavenly realm because it says, the Lord cometh forth out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So the Lord comes down. He treads upon the high places. The earthly temple there in Jerusalem was upon a high place. It was the kind of the pinnacle there. I mean, uh, it was built up high. And so God is coming down from somewhere higher than that. When I'm talking about His holy temple. He's coming down from somewhere higher than Jerusalem. And He's going to tread upon the high places of the earth. And when God treads, it's like when He's a witness against someone. When the Bible talks about God treading, it, it usually is talking about God's judgment. And, and God's judgment is coming here in this book. And it's going to happen. And the high places in the Bible usually refer to those places of idolatry. Those places where you read over there in the Kings and Chronicles, uh, and in King so-and-so, he built the high places. And it just means idol worship was being reinstituted. And so when it says God is going to tread upon the high places, I believe it's talking about judgments going to come to the places of idolatry in both Samaria and Jerusalem. And the false worship was going to be dealt with. And in verse 4, we see that the great power of God stepping down and treading upon the mountains. Look at verse 4. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. There's a lot of symbolism here being used, as I mentioned earlier, to describe this coming judgment of, of God that's going to come upon both the high and the low. The mountains were not only the locations of high places of false idol worship, but the mountains can also refer to nations, authorities, those who were high in authority, rulers, and those who institute the national 
idol worship in a country, the Bible says that they're going to melt like wax. And to, to, to prove what I'm saying to you, uh, well, in just a second, let me, first let me read to you Psalm 68 two. It says, As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. And so this is judgment language that we're reading here, opening up in, in Micah. And, and the, the connection between the mountains and the nations, we see that in Habakkuk 3.6. It says, He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways were everlasting. And so there's a connection here symbolically with mountains and the nations, those in leadership. The valleys was where the food was grown. And in the valleys where the food was grown, they would then take it to the high places to offer sacrifices to their false gods. And so the valleys may also picture the commoners. If the mountains express those who are are high in authority, the valleys may represent us. And so those who are of low estate. And, And the mountains were not only the locations of high places of false idol worship and that place of idolatry, but when we think about that in relation to the valleys, if we flip that upside down, then, then also the valleys would have to mean those who would, would then go up to the high places and offer those sacrifices to those false idols that God has such a problem with. And, and, and what's interesting about the verbiage here, it says the mountains will melt and the valleys will, shall be cleft. Well, we typically think of a mountain being torn in two not a valley. And, and yet the, the Bible here says that the valley is going to be cleft. To me, that sounds kind of odd. And so I kind of wondered what all that meant. But perhaps it pictures God's judgment going deep into the earth, that God is going to get to the heart of the problem. He's going to get to the human heart. And it says it will be as waters that are poured down a steep place. If you can picture that, you think of waters that are flowing downhill. And if it's a place where it gets more and more steep, the waters get more and more furious. They get more and more fast. They gain speed. And as they do, they begin to carve out where they're going, bringing a cleft, if you will. It carves a path. Habakkuk 3.9 says, Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. And I think that's the picture here of this judgment that's coming. And so we see... Verse 5 begins to get more specific as to why God is angry. It says, For the transgressions of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? And so we see that the problem is sin. And as we go, it's going to be absolutely clear, the sin is idolatry. But here's the question that's asked. What is the transgression of Jacob? Well, the answer there for us, it's Samaria. What's the transgression of Judah? What's the high places of Judah? The answer is Jerusalem. Now, if you were here when we went through Hosea, I'm going to move a little bit faster than we did during our time in Hosea. But you may recall that the sin of Samaria was the two golden calves that were made after the kingdom was split in two. 
when the kingdom was split in two after Solomon, you had Jeroboam and Rehoboam running these two houses. Jeroboam was king over the northern ten tribes. And Jeroboam, he feared that when the northern ten tribes would travel south into Judah to worship as God's law had prescribed, that when they got to Judah, they would want to reunite both houses again. Remember, for those of you here, remember all this? And so Jeroboam, I I hope I have my Boehms right. The northern Boehm, he thought, well, there's a way to prevent them from wanting to go to Jerusalem. And so he had the bright idea to make two golden calves. And he told the house of Israel, he said, these be thy gods, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Sound familiar? And so he builds these two calves. This is what he said. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he put one in Bethel and one in Dan. But even though they were placed in in Dan and Bethel, Samaria was the birthplace of that idolatry. In Hosea chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it says, Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? For from Israel was it also. The workmen made it, therefore it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. And so God was saying, That which you've trusted in, it's doing nothing for you. In Judah, the high place of Jerusalem. What was the high place in Jerusalem? It was the temple. Now, that shows you how corrupt Judah was at the time Micah began to prophesy. Or at least when this message was, be given, was given, I should say. And so, it was the temple. And we know from verse 1 that Micah prophesied in the days of Ahaz, king of Judah. It was Ahaz, you may also remember this, I think, from Hosea. I can't remember when we covered it. Oh, it was when we were going through the series on the church. And, and you may remember Ahaz was the one, he went to Damascus and he saw this altar that was being used for idol worship. And he loved that altar. He thought it looked really cool. And so he had Uriah the priest draw up some sort of a plan for it and they bring it back to Jerusalem. They build that altar and he uses it in the temple. And he rearranged the temple. He put things where he wanted, didn't follow God's plan. He was really something. What I'm saying is the the temple in Jerusalem had become a place of idol worship. It had become a place of idolatry. Speaking of Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28, verses 3 and 4 say, Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And then in that same chapter, verses 24 and 25, it says, And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut the doors to the house of the Lord. And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every several city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. And so eventually under Ahaz, the house of the Lord was just decommissioned. And he started dotting the land with all these places of idolatry, these high places, the Bible says, in every corner of Jerusalem. Now look at verse 6 of our text. Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard, 
and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. Though both Judah and Samaria are headed for judgment, and we see that throughout the prophets, Israel was the first to fall. And Micah here now turns his attention to Samaria. Uh, Samaria, your judgment is looming. It's coming. It's at the door. And they were the first to fall. This verse fits with the imagery of verse 4, where the mountains will melt and the valleys will rent. The stones of the altars of the high places would be cast down into the valley. Remember the imagery of the running water. And, And the stones would be cast down into the valleys. Samaria built upon a hillside would be overthrown. And what the verbiage was is that I will, in verse 6, I will make Samaria an heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard. Where there was once this city, it will become a place of agriculture because it's going to be overthrown. The city itself would be destroyed when the Assyrians came in and took the house of Israel captive. Hosea thirteen sixteen says, Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child shall be ripped up. And that's how brutal the Assyrians came in. And in verse 7, all those false gods they worship, they're not going to be able to deliver them from judgment. It says in verse 7, And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate for she gathered it of the hire of an harlot and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. Now, it's amazing, isn't it? I'm going to try to wrap this up because I know this is very dry today. It's amazing that people will worship a God that can be beaten into pieces. Imagine worshiping something that can be thrown in the fire. Isn't it amazing that people do that? They still do it today, even though we're becoming a more godless uh, world. Isaiah makes it clear that they are no gods at all. If you can break something up in pieces and you can cast it in the fire, guess what? It's not a god. That's what Isaiah says in chapter 37, verses 18 and 19. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. And the end of verse 7 is a prophecy that the house of Israel will go into captivity. Um, They got their false gods from idolatrous nations. They gained favor with some of the nations around them by adopting their false gods. And what they did was they played the harlot with pagan nations. And that's the language that's being used there at the end of verse 7. She gathered it of the hire of an harlot. How did she get all this idolatry? Because she played the harlot. She went after the false gods. But, but then it goes on to say, they shall return to the hire of an harlot. And God says, look, if, if you want it that bad, here you go. That's a dangerous place to get to when God finally says, okay. And so God says, guess what? If you want the gods of Assyria so bad, I'll let the Assyrians come in and take you captive. And so they committed spiritual whoredoms by adopting false gods, and they would go back into the hands of the heathen. Let me close by reading 2 Kings uh, chapter 17, verses 13 through 17. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes. 
according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you by my servants the prophets. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks, like to the neck of their fathers, that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain or empty. And went after the heathen that were around and went after the heathen round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their son and their daughters to pass through the fire and used divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So I would just close with this challenge. I know this hasn't been much preaching this morning, but are you listening to those that God has sent your way? Are you listening to the preaching of God's Word? Are you heeding God's Word? Are you reading it? Are you digesting it and chewing on it? Are, are, you, are you listening? Are you being willing to be told to turn from your wicked ways? Or do you stiffen your neck and reject His Word? And is God angered at you because you keep serving the false God of self? Is God going to be a witness against you from His holy temple? Is he going to tread upon your power? You got to repent before it's too late. And you got to ask God to show mercy. Let's pray.